unity. Have you considered the various motives, benefits uh, for living in unity? We might know things like, well, united we stand. There's something about the notion of being stronger when we are united. You don't have to be a Christian to understand the benefits or the motivations for wanting to live in unity. Even non-Christians understand that there is strength in unity, there is peace in unity, there is goodwill in unity. You don't have to be a Christian to understand the benefits or the motives uh, for trying to live as a united people. When our nation is divided, and we live in a time when we see that, those divisions uh, in increasing, we, we see and feel the, the effects, even as a, as a nation, as citizens of this country, when our country is divided, when neighborhoods are divided, when cities are divided. You don't have to be a Christian to understand the goodness, the beauty, the benefits of unity. And yet, for us as Christians, not only should we have, at the very least, an understanding of the benefits that even non-Christians have of unity, but for us as Christians, we have additional reasons to see both the beauty and the purposes and the motivations for unity in the body of Christ. And this morning... We want to look at the book of Romans and understand motivations for unity. And the, the theme that we will be looking at, the, the argument that Paul is making in this passage that we will look at in Romans 15, is that Christians have gospel purposes for pursuing unity. Christians have gospel purposes for pursuing unity. In other words, we may encourage one another to pursue unity just because it's good we are stronger together. We are more peaceful when we're united. But Christians have specific reasons, motivations, why we should pursue unity. And listen to God's word from Romans chapter 15. I'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to verse 13. God's word from Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Here's the word of the Lord. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. What glorious words these are. Would you join me in asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearing? Let's pray. Let's show our dependence on the Lord for this moment. Father, you have given us your son, Jesus. And you have given us your word that tells us about the redemption that you have worked, that you have promised, that you have executed, that you have fulfilled through your son, Jesus. Father, as we have just read this text, and as we are hearing this message, Father, I pray that you would help me proclaim it, and I ask that you would help us hear it well. Father, would you accomplish your purposes even now in this hour, in this place? Through this passage, through this message, Lord, we pray that you would glorify Christ. We pray that you would speak to us in a way that our hearts would glorify you through the work that Jesus has done. And we pray this through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The main argument that Paul is trying to convince us through this passage is that Christians have gospel purposes to pursue unity. Christians have gospel purposes to pursue unity. And in this passage we will see five purposes. They're not the only ones in the Bible, but here are five purposes why we as Christians should pursue unity with one another as believers. Now, to be clear, this unity is not so much unity with all peoples everywhere. This is about the unity of Christians who assemble together. This is not even the unity that Christians have with other Christians around the world because we don't gather with them. This is not about Christians living in the same unity with other Christians from other times in history because former saints are dead. Those who are about to come after us, some are not yet alive. They're not even born. This is primarily about unity with those who gather together and actually exercise unity in corporate worship. Five motivations why we as Christians should pursue unity, and these motivations are all gospel purposes. Uh, let me just mention them quickly, and then we're going to jump through 
and understand why you and I as Christian, as a believer, should pursue this unity. We would be praying for this unity, that we would be laboring for this unity, five purposes. Number one, because it's an obligation. Because it's an obligation. And we're going to see what the obligation is. Second, because it's a biblical hope. Because it's a biblical hope. And we'll see what the hope is. Third, because it's a means to glorify God. It's a means to glorify God. Fourth, because this is why Christ became a servant. This is why Christ became a servant. And finally, because it's a divine work. Because it's a divine work. Pursuing unity. Gospel purposes for pursuing this unity. Let's look at each of these five reasons, these five purposes. We have an obligation. It's an obligation. Now, you may not feel very encouraged when the first motive, and especially when it's called a gospel purpose, is summarized with the words, we have an obligation. That doesn't sound very gospely, does it? Well, let's unpack it. What's, what's the obligation here? Well, Paul is continuing the argument that he has actually been making uh, in chapter 14 about the strong Christians and the weak Christians. And he says in chapter 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, the strong and the weak here in this passage are not referring to the people who go out and, and, and work at the gym and just have stronger muscles, a stronger body. That's not what he's talking about. It's not even talking about the, the, the strong who are spiritually strong versus those who are spiritually weak. Uh, those who are regularly in God's word and being encouraged by God's word and by getting regularly with God's people and are just are in a season when they're spiritually strong versus others who feel depleted for various reasons, some legitimate, some illegitimate, who are just depleted and weak spiritually. That's not the strong and the weak here. We have to understand this passage in the context of what went on in chapter 14, where the strong and the weak refer to those who have a weak conscience or a strong conscience. Uh, the, the strong in conscience are those who uh, had the ability to understand that the Jewish laws that were given, that God has given in the Old Testament, are no longer requirements for the Christian life today because of Christ. And those who are, had a stronger conscience understood the fullness of God's revelation and were no longer bothered in their conscience that certain food laws, as dictated by the Old Testament, uh, that they were a sin matter anymore. The, the weak in conscience were those for whom those Old Testament laws were still in place in a way that their conscience in the present time was bothering them to think that they, if, if they were to live or to eat those foods or drink those drinks, they would be sinning against the Lord. So here the strong and the weak have to do with our conscience, has to do with our conscience. 
do we have a strong conscience or a weak conscience? Now, let me just say, for all of us, as we're wrestling with this issue, well, what, what is a weak conscience today when we're not Jews or Gentiles anymore? Uh, we're, we're not having the same struggles of, of Jews and Gentiles anymore. There's a host of things we might be struggling in our conscience about today. And the reality is that some of us, in some areas, we might have a stronger conscience in some areas. In other areas, we might have a weaker conscience. In other areas where some are weak, um, we might be strong. In areas where we are strong, uh, others might be weak. But reality is we actually, most of us have some level where we're going to experience this weaker or stronger conscience. And Paul is making clear that he is among those who have a stronger conscience. Did you notice that? We who are strong. Now what's special about Paul is that he was a Jewish Christian. Even though he was a Jewish Christian, he has grown to understand the fullness of God's revelation to a point where his conscience got stronger on the issues of food and drink. So he now puts himself among those who have a stronger conscience. And he says, we who are strong have an obligation. Now what's the obligation? Uh, the obligation is to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's important at this point to bring a helpful clarification about matters of conscience. Uh, the matters of conscience are not simply matters of preference or style. A conscience matters are about what is right or wrong morally in your, in, in your understanding of what God revealed to us according to, his, to the Bible. What is obedience and disobedience based on God's revelation? For example, should a church have carpet in the sanctuary or hardwood so that the sound would work better in the sanctuary? Well, some may think that that's a, that's a conscience matter. Whatever each of us think. Well, it's not a conscience matter. That's a preference matter because a conscience matter Unless you have a place in the Bible that you think, wow, we must have this particular kind of flooring in the, in the church. And if we don't have that, we are sinning against the Lord. Conscience matters have to do with the spectrum of what is right or wrong in the sight of God based on God's revelation. So whether or not we have carpet, and you can see what choice we have made in this church. Or hardwood flooring. It's not a conscience matter. It's just a preference matter. Uh, should a church paint its walls red, purple, or green? Uh, believe it or not, I've heard of churches that, that have had disunity over the fact that some members chose to paint the walls of a church a particular color. Is that a conscience issue? It's definitely a division issue. But is that a conscience issue? Well, no. It's a preference issue because it's you're not putting somebody else in danger of violating their conscience and therefore sinning against the Lord. People might have questions about music. Is that a conscience matter? 
Probably not, unless you feel like, wow, playing a certain kind of music is just from the devil. It would be a sin. Well, it may be just a matter of preference, not a conscience matter. Though, if someone makes the argument, we might have a conversation about it, and we should, if someone is bothered by it in the matter of conscience. But we should be clear that not everything that's a preference is a matter of conscience. Here, Paul, when he says we have an obligation, the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, he's still talking about this, ma- this conversation about the conscience. It's not just about preferences. So, those whose conscience are able to bear more, we should feel the obligation a responsibility to to bear with the weaknesses or the failings of the weaker brothers whose consciences might lead them to sin over a particular issue. Paul makes it as a matter of obligation. On one side, to bear with the weaknesses of the fellow brothers and sisters. He is not saying... Well, it would be nice to tolerate them. It'd be nice to put up with them. Just don't make a fight out of it. No, he's actually saying, bear the weaknesses. Carry the burdens. Don't just leave it to them to figure it out. You carry the burdens, carry the weaknesses. Be involved in their weaknesses in a way that is actually not so much about what pleases you, but what builds them up. So this is not a matter of let's just not fight about it and each of us go our separate ways and we just live to tolerate each other. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's saying bear the burdens. Get involved to understand And try to please not yourself, but try to please the other for the sake of building up the other. And that's the the two parts of this obligation. On one side, bear with the failings of the others who who have a weaker conscience. But also do so to build them up. Bearing with their weaknesses means not holding their weaknesses against them, not harboring frustration in your heart against their weakness, even though your conscience would lead you in a different direction, not letting judgment or despising grow in your heart about them. Again, the weaknesses are not about personal preferences, but are matters that might lead someone to sin and might affect their walk with Christ. What helps us to put on the mindset of carrying the weaknesses of others? Paul says, not only to put, to bear the the weaknesses of others, but actually make a commitment. It's not about pleasing yourself. It's about building others up. Now, in our context here, we oftentimes talk about the danger of being people pleasers. The fear of man, pleasing people. 
the language here might seem similar, but it's very different concepts. When someone is engaged in people-pleasing, they do it to benefit themselves. You actually care about how people view you. People-pleasing, in that sense, is very actually selfish. It's all about you, even as you please others in terms of people-pleasing in a sinful way. Yet here, Paul is talking about pleasing not ourselves, but pleasing the other for a very different purpose. The purpose is to build them up. Vastly different. We can, we can have the sense of an obligation that I am to please my brother and sister who has a weaker conscience so that the goal is to build them up in the faith. We act in ways that help them grow their faith and walk with Christ. That's why we seek to please them. This is not about enabling them to just live in their selfish ways. It's not about simply pleasing them for the sake of unity, just so that we're just a happy bunch of people. No, that we actually are supposed to please them for the sake of building them up. And part of building them up in the faith is to actually discuss the differences of conscience, go back to Scripture, examine the arguments. Let Scripture show you perhaps there might be a lot of growth in, in good godly conversations between brothers and sisters on conscience matters when we open this book and actually examine the arguments. And when someone's conscience becomes calibrated further by God's Word, hopefully that brother or sister may actually get stronger in their conscience, moving from a position of weakness of conscience to greater strength in conscience. Well, that happens as we actually discuss, talk through, reason together from Scripture. Now, after reasoning together from Scripture, the two parties still remain unconvinced. That's where you agree to allow each other room and you agree not to look down on the other or judge the other. But the aim is, can we look at the interests of others and seek to please others to actually help them grow and be built up? Well, friends, sometimes keeping a matter between you and God does not mean that you should not talk from Scripture about the differences. It would be a poor application from the passage last week when Paul says, keep it between you and God, if by that we mean, let's not talk through the differences. That would be a poor application of that text. No, talk through Scripture. Talk through the differences. Let Scripture calibrate our views. And at the end of the day, if we still disagree or while we disagree in terms of practice, uh, do it in a way that does not undermine the conscience of the other. Now, Paul gives us a powerful example why we should seek to please our neighbor, not ourselves. And the example is... Jesus. Look at verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a quotation from Psalm 69, a psalm that speaks in other ways about Jesus. It would be a wonderful psalm for you to go home and just meditate on. Psalm 69. Christ was so far from pleasing himself that the greatest part of carrying the burdens of others is actually that he took on himself the rebellion of sinners against God. Christ took the reproaches that sinners incurred 
as they reproached God, as they rebelled against God, Christ took that on himself. What sinners were supposed to endure, Christ endured even if he did not rebel at all against the Father. This is the example of Jesus. This is what it means to please the neighbor. To take the weakness of the neighbor, carry it yourself in some way. What that looks like, it will depend from situation to situation. It will depend in conversation as you talk to the person that you have a difference with. But ask yourself, why should I bear the weaknesses of others when they are not my weaknesses? They just need to man up. They just need to figure it out and get stronger. And Paul says, no, no. Just as Christ took your reproaches and carried them, you take on the burdens of others. You take on the weaknesses. Be involved in their weaknesses. Carry what you can. Have a conversation if that's what it takes. Whatever the failings of the other, friends, we are called to bear them and say, I am willing to carry this burden or this failure of others because Christ carried mine. And when you feel like you're tired, when you've done it, and you are at the end of the rope in terms of bearing with the failings of others and with the burdens of others. Just remember this verse, this comparison. As Christ bore our reproaches, so also we are to bear the reproaches of others. Ask yourself, instead of scolding, dismissing, looking down on others. Ask yourself, would I want Jesus to carry my burdens the way I want to carry the burdens of others? Would I want Jesus to carry my burdens the way I am willing and ready to carry the burdens of others? This is the obligation that we have, brothers and sisters. This is why the call to unity is a gospel purpose here. It's an obligation. Now, if you, if you struggle with the idea of obligation, because anything that has to do with duty does not sound like grace, and anything that just sort of puts a burden on you sounds like the opposite of the gospel, Paul is making it very clear this is an obligation. There's no, there's no ways around it. It's an obligation. Say, so, well, I, I'm still struggling. This does not sound very gospel-y. Well, let me, let me paint another picture for you. Imagine you are going to the hospital. You hurt yourself. You did something you should have not done, something foolish, something unwise. But you did it anyway. So you go to the ER. You get yourself checked in. The nurses come and look at you, and the, eventually you get to the doctor. What would you say if the doctor gets frustrated with you, uh, begins talking down at you, begins judging you for how foolish of a person you must have been to be doing that kind of thing that got you this wound? I mean, imagine if the doctor and the nurse were there grumbling and just frustrated with you. 
and feeling like, wow, they are doing you a super big favor for putting up with your wound and with your illness or with, your, with your, the issue that you came up with. What would you say about that doctor or about those nurses? Like, I'm not going back to that hospital. Who put them to be doctors? Who put them to get to be nurses? You understand inside of you, there is this logic. They're doctors and nurses. They have an obligation to carry for the sick. I mean, this is their profession. This is why they got trained. And to do so, not out of frustration, not with an attitude of looking down on others, not with, a, with an attitude of, oh, I'm doing you a favor. And you know that they should not expect for you to come into a hospital as a healthy person. There is a built-in obligation in that profession. And if someone doesn't understand that obligation, they should not be a medical staff. In that situation, do you see how the obligation is a good thing? Like it's part of understanding what they were called to be and do. It's part of the DNA of what it means to be a doctor and a nurse. To treat the wounds. To care for the sick. To come to, a, to, to their assistance and help them get healthy. Whatever it takes. In a similar way, Paul says if you're a Christian and you've come to understand the gospel of the grace of God, you and I have an obligation. We have an obligation. It's not, it's not a duty that should feel like law and legalism. It's more like a privilege. This is part of the DNA of what it means to be a redeemed people. That we actually look out for one another. The strong look out for the weak. Carry each other's burdens. Why? Because we want them to grow in strength. In the same strength of the gospel that we have experienced. Do you see how this obligation is a good thing? Why pursue unity? Because it's an obligation. To bear with the failings of the others and not to please ourselves, but to build others up. Well, that's the first point. That's the first and probably the longest. Here's the next one. Why we should pursue unity. Not only is it an obligation, it's a biblical hope. It's a biblical hope. Look at verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now this verse is a side note. It's as if Paul is making a parenthesis in his argument and says, let me, I just quoted you a verse from Psalm 69. Let me make a side note here and speak to you about the scriptures. So this is a side note. Paul is saying that when we read the scriptures, and by the way, his time, in his time, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. He says, we should learn the endurance of the Old Testament saints. And we should learn from the Old Testament in such a way that we are provided with encouragement so that we might have What nourishes hope in us, according to this verse? One source for nourishing hope is the reading of the scriptures. People sometimes share their struggles of having hope. I'm struggling to have hope. It's a real thing. 
whether it's uh, depression, uh, which is a, a stronger situation, a, a more difficult situation, or just a season that's just discouraging for various reasons. One of the first questions I ask is, well, how is your time with God in reading the Word? How are you spending time with the Lord? Uh, reading His Word, meditating on it, talking back to God in prayer. A scripture reading is not only for our instruction, it is for instruction, but it's also for helping us endure and helping us be encouraged. These together contribute to hope in us. If you're a Christian, let me ask you, how is your scripture reading these days? Are you spending time reading the Bible? Are you getting encouragement from reading God's Word? If you're not, if you're not reading God's Word, what is it that keeps you from reading it on a regular basis? I know the summer's coming and schedules are different, people traveling and the rhythms of life is different in the summertime. Uh, it's a particular challenge, especially when our, we don't have our normal rhythms, uh, to miss out on reading Scripture. I want to encourage us uh, to just pursue reading Scripture. Why? Because in it we find endurance. In it we find encouragement. In it we find reasons for hope. So are you battling hopelessness? How is your Scripture reading? Not only are you spending time in the Word, but are you actually getting encouragement from it? It's not uncommon for Christians to experience seasons of dryness even while they open up the Bible. It feels like you're reading and reading and you're still in the wilderness. Not physically and not in your reading place, not that you're in Exodus. But like it's just dry. You're reading the words of the page and they do not nourish your soul. It is possible for Christians to experience that. And it's not that something is just wrong with you. But when you experience dryness, even in terms of time in the Word and prayer, talk to other believers about it. Talk to, talk to the pastors. Talk to others that, that just open up about this reality and ask. Ask the Lord to, to help you. Ask others to pray for you in that. But don't just, don't just blow through. Scripture is meant not only for our instruction. It is meant for our encouragement. So that as we experience time with the Lord, we actually may be built up in hope. But the hope that Paul is speaking about here is actually not just hope in general. And it's not even just having um, the Christian hope in terms of like a, a positive confidence in the fact that all things will work out in the end. That's a great hope to have. I hope we have it. But here the hope that Paul is talking about is a little more specific. It's a little more tied in to the argument that Paul is making in this part of Scripture. It's the hope. You know what the hope is? It's the hope of unity. It's the hope of unity. The hope for harmony. That Jews and Gentiles will actually live like a united people. How do we know that? Well, two reasons. For one, if we keep looking down at the end of our text, Paul is going to quote four passages from the Old Testament. And he's going to show that all four passages have to do with Gentiles joining the Jews, the believing Jews, in worshiping God together. It's a hope for unity. The second reason that we know this hope is a hope for unity is because in verse 5, Paul says, 
a benediction or a, a blessing, a prayer. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. In other words, the endurance that we read about from the scripture and the encouragement we get as we read the scripture, Paul says, God is actually using his word to bring about endurance and to bring about encouragement. That's what you engage in the scriptures with. You engage with God. So the God of endurance and the God of encouragement, may he grant you to live in such harmony. The purpose is to live in unity. The purpose is that God's people would actually understand that we need encouragement, we need endurance, we need hope. This hope that God is uniting people to himself and to one another. Oh friends, the unity that the Bible calls us to have is not merely a calling, but a provision that God gives. He grants us to live in such un harmony. And this is very encouraging because it means that we are not left to ourselves, to our own resources, to live in such harmony. May God grant you to live in such harmony. This is why we care about our horizontal relationships as members of this church. Because we understand that when we actually cultivate our unity with one another, when we actually care for each other and bearing each other's burdens, we understand that God is actually working in us. God is doing, using these physical means to build up a people for himself just as he said he would in the Old Testament. It's a biblical hope to hold on to this unity. It's also another reason why we should pursue this unity, not only because it's an obligation and it's a biblical hope, it's also a means to glorify God. It's a means to glorify God. Twice, Paul says in this, in this text that the ultimate purpose why we should pursue this unity is because it's how we glorify God. You see this purpose of harmony that Paul prays for? In verse 5, he said, pray that God may grant them to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. But what's the purpose of why God would help them live with this harmony or in this harmony? Verses 6 and then verse 7. That together you may, with one voice, glorify God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? That together... You may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul brings in a therefore in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The purpose of this harmony, the purpose of the unity we're supposed to cultivate and have is the glory of God. This is, a, this is one of the dimensions that non-Christians cannot do. We may pursue unity because it's more selfish for each of us. We, we just like, it's just better for each of us to live in a community that's united. Paul says, no, pursue unity for the glory of God. It's for ultimately for God's goodness, for God's character being portrayed among the nations when his people are actually living in unity. The unity and harmony that God desires them to have. The unity and harmony that God grants them to have. 
is so that they would glorify God. Well, friends, not everyone, this is not about glorifying God, every one of us, separate on our own. We should do that when we're scattered. This is about glorifying God, not what you do when you are in your closet, not what you do when you are buying things at the store. This is about glorifying God when you're gathered together. This is one of the corporate experiences of glorifying God as one voice. Of course, they could each glorify God in their homes separately, minding their own business. But this is not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the corporate experience, the assembling together. Can we actually assemble together and be united when we show up together and glorify God with one voice? Unity is not the ultimate aim here. The glory of God is. The glorifying of God here is not referring to the individual experience of glorifying God, but to the corporate experience of glorifying God. Oh, friends, the aim of our unity, the aim of why we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us is to make a big name for Jesus. We put him on display when we are united. Friends, in these verses, we actually see the practical climax of the entire letter to the Romans. This is the last big therefore that Paul makes in the book of Romans before he begins the conclusion. Like this is the climax of the book in terms of application. The application started in a particular way in chapter 12, presenting your body as a living sacrifice but this is a climax for, to which all is being built up. This is actually why Paul wrote Romans. To say that their understanding of the gospel should affect the way they worship together in church. So Paul says, welcome one another. Welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Well, friends, the pattern of welcoming one another is how Jesus welcomed us. He welcomed us for the glory of God. And he wants us to welcome one another for the glory of God. The only reason why you and I can glorify God is because Jesus welcomed us. If Jesus would have not welcomed us, none of us would be able to glorify God. Because each of us would have gone our own way. We have dethroned God of his glory. We have wanted our glory instead of God's, as Romans 1 would put it. Jesus welcomed us when we have rebelled against him. Jesus welcomed Peter when Peter denied him three times. Jesus welcomed his disciples even after they fled from him in the garden. Jesus welcomed us by giving us his body to be broken. By shedding his blood so that we could benefit from it so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we would be established in a new covenant with God the Father. It's because of Jesus' blood. We have ate of his, blood, of his body. We have drunk of his blood symbolically. This is what Jesus has done to welcome us so that you and I can glorify God. We could not glorify God outside of Jesus welcoming us. And now that he welcomed us for the glory of God, Paul says, now you welcome one another as well for the glory of God. 
Well, friends, people today feel like they need to do very special things and sacrificial things to glorify God. Perhaps some think, well, I got to go on a mission trip. And it's a wonderful thing to go on a mission trip. Some may think, well, I got to act boldly with my faith and, and share Jesus with my neighbors. And I, this way I glorify God. And that's a wonderful way to glorify God by being active in your evangelism. Others think, I got to get involved in mercy ministries to glorify God and take care of the needs of others. And it's a wonderful way to glorify God through mercy ministries. But here's another means to glorify God. Welcome one another. When you welcome one another, you glorify God. You say, well, what does that mean, welcome one another? Well, let me just encourage you to welcome each other by taking initiative for that welcome. It's not about when others reach out to you and you just show a nice welcome when others reach out to you. Have you considered that actually the command to welcome one another is a command for you to take the first step to reach out to the other? It's not about, well, nobody's reaching out to me. I have nobody to welcome. If they reach out to me, I would welcome them. Well, friends, welcoming one another actually presupposes here a dimension of, no, you take the initiative. Imagine if Jesus welcomed you in the same way you expect others or you think about welcoming others. Imagine if Jesus welcomed you with the same passivity as sometimes we feel like about welcoming others. I'll just welcome others if they reach out to me. Well, friends, is this how Jesus reached out to you? Is this how Jesus welcomed you and I? If he had not sought after the lost sheep, to go after the lost sheep, the lost sheep would have never been found. If Jesus had not taken the initiative to welcome us, we would have not ever taken the initiative to go after Jesus. Part of welcoming one another is take initiative to reach out. Extend a knock on people's doors, even physically. You know, the Hortons do this sometimes. They just decide to show up at people's houses. Paul and Susan, thank you for doing that. We appreciate you. We're talking about you, about just taking initiative. Knock on people's doors just to show up and see how they're doing. If you want to do some other things, I might give them a heads up. That's, that's kind. That'd be helpful. But some people just don't like to even respond. In, take initiative. Take initiative. And then personal sacrifices. Yes, welcoming others involves making sacrifices. Sacrifices of time, sacrifices of priorities. That may mean that sometimes you may actually need to say no to some other activities in your life so that you actually have time to welcome others into your life. Now what that looks like will be different from person to person. It will be different from seasons of life from other people. But the point is, Welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. He did it by taking initiative and he did it by personal sacrifice. Use both of these principles as a way of saying, I want to welcome others for the glory of God. Motivation number four, because this is why Christ became a servant. Because this is why Christ became a servant. 
After Paul gave us this last major therefore in the book of Romans, in the, in the main argument of the book, before he enters into the conclusions of the book, Paul says the, 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 the reason for this big therefore is because actually this is why Christ became a servant. And we see this reason spanning from verse 8 to verse 12. Paul says in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The description of Christ becoming a servant to the circumcised is an unpacking of how Christ welcomed us. It's an unfolding. How did Christ welcome us? Well, here's how he did it. He became a servant to the circumcised. That's a way of saying he became a servant to the Jewish people. But notice... Why did Jesus become a Jew, took on a human flesh, and became a servant to the Jewish people to show God's truthfulness? And the truthfulness of God is then defined in two ways in the rest of the text. On one side, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. In other words, Christ came to tell Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I've come to fulfill what God the Father promised you. What God the Father promised the patriarchs, Jesus says, I've come as a servant to put that into place. And one of the promises was that God would make a people for himself through Abraham. The other promise was that this people would actually be a blessing for all the nations of the earth. And that actually God would bring, bring a people together who would glorify him, who would be made up not only of ethnic Jews, but also of Gentiles. And just to clarify that this was not just a promise to the patriarchs, Paul is going to bring up four quotations from the Old Testament. One from Deuteronomy, two from the Psalms, and one from the prophets. As a way of saying, this has been what God has been promising. And Jesus has come to fulfill it. And the places in the Old Testament um, that Paul is bringing, the fact that they're brought from the law, the prophets, and the writings is a way of saying, this has been God's promise throughout the Old Testament. It's comprehensive. Now, for us who don't struggle with Jewish-Gentile divisions in the church, we can take heart from this motivation for unity. We are to pursue this unity because Christ became a servant to make this unity possible. Christ became a servant to the Jews, fulfilling all the Old Testament requirements that God asked the Jews to fulfill, and they have failed. Jesus came to fulfill them so that now all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus would actually get to become a part of the people of God even if they don't have the ethnic pedigree. So that now God is indeed unfolding and executing and making possible this reality that Jews and Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus become the people of God whom God has promised to bring up from the beginning. To make a people for himself. 
made of Jews and Gentiles who would worship God together with one voice. And here Paul says, look at the evidence of the Old Testament. Jesus came, became a servant to make this unity possible. Oh, friends, friends, why should you and I cultivate labor for cultivating this unity? Because this is why Jesus came to serve us. If Jesus became a servant to make this unity possible, we're actually called to labor for this unity. Not that it depends ultimately on us. It's as if we are invited to enter into someone else's labor and work alongside, contribute, be a part of what Jesus has come to create and make possible. The unity, Jews and Gentiles together, hoping in Christ, would actually assemble together in one place and glorify God with one voice. And finally, final reason why we should pursue this unity. Not only is it an obligation, not only is it a biblical hope, not only is it to glorify God, not only is it because this is why Jesus became a servant, ultimately, and finally, it's because it's a divine work. It's a divine work. Paul ends this passage with this benediction in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Again, the, the, the hope in this passage is first and foremost is the hope for the unity of God's people. Paul is saying, listen, this is, this is what God is at work. That's why Paul is praying this to, to the Lord after encouraging them to pursue unity, after encouraging them to welcome one another, after encouraging them to bear with the weaknesses of, of each other and to build one another up. He, Paul, is turning to the Lord because he knows this is actually what the Lord is doing. May he, the God of this hope that we just read about in the scriptures, the hope of the unity of the people of God, may the God of this hope fill you with Joy and peace in believing. Labor for unity. It's so frustrating sometimes to do that. Don't you think so? It's so hard to labor for unity. You know, even just in, in our convention of churches, in the Southern Baptist Convention, right now it's not a happy time. It's hard to labor for unity. And some things we must be clear about. But Paul is saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that as you pursue this unity, you may do so with joy. You may do so with peace, believing that God is at work, working, and that through the power of the Spirit, he may abound, you may abound in hope, in the hope of this unity first and foremost. Friends, Paul is not only encouraging them and commanding them to welcome and each other, but he's saying, listen, God is doing this. And he's closing this on a sweet note. Depend on the Lord for this unity. Not simply an exhortation, but an encouragement that God is doing this work among them. So Christians have 
gospel purposes to pursue unity. Because it's an obligation to build each other up. Because it's a biblical hope. Because it's a means to glorify God. Because this is why Christ became a servant. Because it's a divine work. One of the Bible teachers put it this way. Paul in this text holds up before people the wonderful cosmic vision of the glory and praise of God through a unified church of men and women who do not please themselves. This is a picture. A picture of of this cosmic vision of the glory and praise of God through a united church of men and women who do not please themselves. Why? Because Jesus has redeemed us. Friends, do you see how the power of the gospel unites people to God and to one another? Do you feel like this desire for this unity is boiling in your own heart? If you have never united yourself to the people of God, perhaps in committing to join a congregation, consider this call to unity, the call to commit to the people of God as a means of glorifying God, as a means of actually living out with this passage is calling you and I to do and be. Perhaps if you are already a member, just think of ways in which this summer God wants you to commit to cultivating this unity, to welcome one another for the sake of Christ and ultimately for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. And thank you for painting before us a picture of the gospel purposes for this unity. Father, we pray and ask that you would help us by our life together as a congregation, as we commit to one another for the sake of Christ, that we would put on this on this play the power of your gospel to redeem, to unite us to yourself and to one another. Father, we pray that as a congregation, the life of this church would be a a display, not only of, of what you have done for us in Jesus, but it would be a display of your character. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.